0: Welcome to Find Your Edge by Reflection, where we discuss the real life applications of neurofitness and how they'll shape our future. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Find Your Edge with Reflection. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. And folks, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Reflections Podcast. Make sure you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Make sure you're leaving a rating and a comment wherever you're listening to that podcast content. And if you'd like to learn a little bit more about Reflection after you listen to this uh, or find previous and upcoming episodes and other pieces of content, including videos and articles, make sure you go to Reflection.co, and that is spelled R-E-F-L-E-X-I-O-N dot C-O, Reflection.co. So often on our podcast, Find Your Edge, we're spending time talking about the benefits of neurological fitness for athletes and the quantifiable improvements ...that come to sports and athletic lifestyles after this vision training. Today, we're talking neurofitness, except in the military, and we're breaking down where mental fortitude can mean life or death, and we're going to be breaking down how the U.S. Air Force Academy uses this technology and strategy not only to improve the neurofitness of their students and cadets for their sports activities, but more broadly for active duty members and uh, improving their neurofitness for their military work later in life. So I'd also like to welcome Diana Bullinger as our main guest for the conversation. conversation. She is the assistant director and head exercise physiologist of the Human Performance Lab for the U.S. Air Force Academy. And with her role, she conducts physiological testing, vision training, hyperoxic training, and research with active duty members and cadets. And she previously was a sports performance coach as well. Diana, great to have you on. How are you doing today?
1: I'm doing pretty good. How are you doing?
0: I am great. How are you holding up during this pandemic? Everything okay on your end?
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's really not that bad for us, uh, mainly because I have a lot of administrative stuff I can do, and we don't <laughs> typically have time to do it till the summer. So, Right. Um, although I Keep, miss my Keeping yourself busy. Exactly. Miss <laughs> the co-workers, miss training the athletes, um, and that will always be there, but at least I have some work that I can fill my time with.
0: For sure. Yeah, I think that's uh, this is the reality for most people that have the luxury of working from home. It's all about, how am I filling my time? I feel like I'm working uh I don't know, two or three times as hard as, as in the office. Things are, things are busy, busy, busy.
1: Mm-hmm. Always you know, rolling.
0: <laughs> exactly. Always rolling. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to breaking this down with you. It's a very interesting use case for this technology, and I want to unpack all the different layers of it. Let's start by uh, getting a little more context on you and your work. So what got you into the work of neurofitness, and how did you land at the Air Force Academy?
1: Uh, it was kind of weird. I, I was in grad school and my professors knew I was interested in military, so they had a an internship flyer for the Air Force Academy uh, Human Performance Lab. I applied and I, I got one of the intern spots and that was in 2012. And uh, I guess I left a good enough impression on the director. A couple years later, the assistant position opened up and he emailed probably about five or six of us previous interns to see if we were interested and I was the lucky one that got chosen.
0: And I know you worked as a sports performance coach before making it to the Air Force Academy. Um, What got you interested in military work over sports work with neurofitness, and why make that transition out of sports to military and higher education to administer this work?
1: Uh, I think I've been just involved and interested in human performance for quite a while, ever since undergraduate, um, my undergraduate work, and. I think the switch for me at least for military was just it was is very similar to sport right it's still um you're still training just as hard you're still training for different energy systems and different muscular systems and uh, i think the fact that the end goal was different right for sports it's win or lose for military it could be life or death and so i think just the fact that it's giving back to those who give to us uh, that kind of really called me towards it and uh, ironically, the neurofitness that just kind of fell on my lap because that's what we do at the that's part of what we do at the human performance lab at the academy. Uh, I really had no experience with it, had never dealt with it before. Uh, but when I got when I was an intern and when I got hired on, it's kind of about half of your job. So that one kind of fell on my lap, which I'm not not uh, unhappy about that.
0: <laughs> and now that you've experienced um, two sides of the neurofitness coin, how does the work compare? Uh, both just the daily practice of neurofitness work and uh, vision training, um, but also just more broadly, how it's accepted and how it's um, brought in as a strategy to the organizations that you're working for. How do they compare sports and military?
1: I think on some fronts, they're very similar. Um, When you're training the visual system, although the end goal may be different, uh, some of the exercises are fairly the same. You just may change them to be more specific to a certain population. Um, But in terms of buy-in, it's also sort of similar as well. I think military is starting to, to buy in a little bit harder because of that end goal of life or death. I think they're noticing that some of this neurocognitive training is very important. And if it's a high stressful situation, they need to have not only their wits about them, but they need to be able to visually consume everything that's happening and make the right decision. Uh, so I wouldn't say everyone's all in. Not everyone has been. Oh, we need vision training, but a lot of people are starting to notice the benefits and how it can, re- excuse me, how it can really help uh, with that population.
0: So when was this program of uh, neurofitness and sports vision training introduced to the United States Air Force Academy? Uh, give us a little history and context on that making it to um, this this academy.
1: So our very first year was 1994. Uh, so it's been at the Academy for several years. Um, and it kind of popped up, I'm pretty sure, through Al Weil. Uh, he's actually well-known throughout the vision world. And he's the one that kept it running. He kept uh, building the program. He's kept pushing it through the teams uh, and really pushed it at the Air Force Academy. And so over the years, it really started to grow. And then when new directors came in, when new um employees came into the human performance lab they just continued to help him grow that program once they realized how important it was uh, so al stopped working in the human performance lab i po- i believe in 2013. Uh, dr jupan had taken it up from him from there and then dr jupan retired in 2017 and and i took it on after that point
0: what was the pressure like of uh beginning to lead that team
1: it was pretty interesting um mainly cuz when i first got hired as the assistant director i i didn't know that Zupan was retiring uh, so right. <laughs> i got surprise. hired surprise <laughs> yeah it really was a surprise i got hired on late 2015 and on my second day it was like oh yeah i'm retiring in a year and i was like what <laughs> <laughs> so um, the shock of it 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 did shock me for a couple like days maybe a week and then once i knew that i'd been there before i did like working there it's a great environment a great place with a lot of resources Um, it was it was really fun to take it over it did it was a lot of work Uh, when I first started taking over it was the fall of 2016 and fall is our busiest time of the year so having to take on more responsibility on top of our already busy schedule that was rough but uh, it's been pretty nice since then being able to not only have it under my wing but also to be able to modify it to try and find new ways to improve our vision training system I think Uh, Because Zupan was retiring, it started to become stagnant. So I think having a new new mind and a, a fresh body in there can help modify and kind of bring things up to date. So that was pretty nice to be a part of.
0: Sure. When this program was initially brought to the Air Force Academy, what was the value that was seen in sports vision training for cadets? And was there a deeper strategy behind it? Was it kind of uh, experimental at first, and it slowly developed a more cohesive strategy? Uh, Walk us through that timeline. So
1: in in 94, the first team that used it was baseball. I think that is one of the sports that uses it the most, especially now. Um, And it also helps that with baseball, you can show stats against stats, which makes it a little bit more Uh, of a hard variable versus like a team sport there's just so many variables it's hard to determine whether vision training helped Um, so that was the first sport that took it on they went from being bottom of the barrel in terms of slugging and hitting percentage to the year after vision training they led the nation so it was a a pretty big impact immediately and i think after that the baseball team was bought in Uh, they didn't need anything else to kind of quote unquote coerced them into it. It was like, nope, this is good for us. We're going to do it. And then from there, it just kind of slowly trickled into other teams. They saw how it affected baseball and they decided to start taking it on themselves. Um, I won't say that all of our teams are doing it because they're not. I don't think everyone buys in, Um, but we do have several teams that come in consistently. And so a lot of it is just trying to show them the benefit of vision training and how they could use it. But it, it primarily has been sports vision training only recently did it start really merging into military and that's partially because of a relationship I have with some military members down in Fort Carson. Uh, They took it on and kind of built their own vision training system and between the two of us we kind of make up these different exercises that can be really useful for special forces. So in the last probably five years it's really gotten a lot bigger in the Special operators community, and I think from there it's going to start trickling down to others. I mean, last year alone, I think three different pilot bases called me to start setting up their own vision training system, which I think is great because our pilots need to have great visual systems. Most of them inherently do, that's how they became pilots. Uh, But if we can maintain or even improve a little bit on that vision training, I think that's going to go a long way with our pilots.
0: Yeah. So is word of mouth mostly what's carrying the benefits of this or is there quantifiable research uh, within the different military academies and organizations uh, that is vouching for um, the utility of basically the the sports vision training? I mean, how is it spreading basically from uh, from institute to institute?
1: I think it's a mixture. Uh, Primarily, it's word of mouth. I think uh, when we have a couple units use it and they start to realize how good it is, they start to spread that word within their own units, which then people uh, do what's called PCS, which is they leave to their next base, and they're going to take that information with them. So I think word of mouth is a huge part of it. Uh, But there has been some research. Now, there's a ton of sports vision research out there. I mean, it's so much. Um, But when we look at military specifically, there's probably only a handful that I can even think of off the top of my head that are specifically military and vision or something neurocognitive. Uh, and so I think that's getting more traction. Every year I see maybe one or two more papers that are released uh, specifically about military in, in uh, some type of neurocognitive or sports vision training. So I think it's getting more traction, which is helping with leadership in military, because if they can see some research behind it, typically they're more likely to at least look into it. Sure. Um, but I, I do think a lot of it's that word of mouth uh, with a couple research studies kind of trickled in there, which some of them um, we've been a part of just through Fort Carson. Like I said, with their their units that they're trying to push it out with, they'll do a couple research studies and we'll help kind of consult on some of that stuff.
0: Sure. Since 94, uh, how has this vision training program grown and fit into Classic training for cadets at the academy. What is that daily and weekly schedule usually like, and where does vision training fit in?
1: So, we we kind of have a unique position at the academy. One, our performance lab, our primary mission are the athletes and the cadets, which I think is not normal for most universities' performance labs. Um, But we also are unique in the fact that our cadets don't really have a lot of time. Uh, They are pressed for time in every different direction between military, physical, academic. I mean, they're pushed everywhere. So for us, we typically have, depending on the season, whether it's fall or spring, we'll have anywhere from three to six teams coming in throughout the week. Uh, They'll come in two to three times a week, depending on the team and their schedule. So if it's off season, they may come in uh, three times a week. If it's during season, it may be once or twice. Uh, and then their programs are about 15 to 25 minutes long, and it kind of gets them in and out. I think more private sector may have longer vision training programs, but I don't really have that luxury. Uh, they, the teams that buy in, they have maximum 30 minutes to get their cadets in and out. So we try to keep our programs short and sweet, uh, get the most bang for our buck when we're, when we're training them to make sure that they continue to come and continue to buy in, and the coach knows that it's a useful 20 minutes, not just a wasted 30 minutes
0: have you seen this training uh, be taken seriously and given priority among uh, the rest of the scheduling uh, for cadets? And um, you know, what has your strategy been between you and your colleagues uh, to continue to grow the program and make it a uh, prioritized piece of training for cadets and for athletes?
1: Um, there are a couple teams that do have it as a priority, particularly our women's tennis team. Uh, the coach came in. I think now it's been about 22, 23 years ago, uh, just to check out this vision training program. And she said after her first year, girls were just getting to tennis, tennis balls they've never gotten to before, hitting shots they would never hit before. And she's like, I'm a good coach, but I'm not that good. So ever since then, she's been bought in. So she will bring her athletes in preseason, offseason, during season, anytime she can. They're coming in two or three times a week. Um, so there's, it is a priority and it is in their schedule every week. Uh, and same with basketball, Our women's basketball team really buys in as well. Um, they do it a little bit differently in terms of how they uh, bring the, the athletes in, but they still make it a top priority, especially during preseason and off offseason. Um, now, for the other teams, we kind of ebb and flow. Most teams are very interested. Uh, we, like I said, we have anywhere from uh, three to six teams a week. So we'll, we'll have probably about a total of 12 to 15 teams, depending on the season that are coming in. Um One thing we try to do is not only make sure the coaches know, you know, there is some turnover in our coaches and if they've never heard of the program, they're probably not gonna be bringing their athletes in. So we gotta make sure the coaches are aware of the program and the the offerings we have for them. And also to to be able to modify. For example, our rifle team, they don't do a lot of movement. They don't need a lot of peripheral vision. They don't need a lot of hand-eye coordination because they're just shooting at a target that's not moving. So this past year, I worked with the rifle coach to kind of come up with some different exercises that would work for her population that may not work for other populations. So I think our ability to understand the research, understand the exercises and be able to modify based off what the sport may or may not need.
0: Mm, love that. Yeah. And uh, I mean, it seems like you're modifying and improving the technology in real time. Uh, are those, um, I guess, uh, niche applications being applied elsewhere now based on the work that y'all are doing at the Air Force Academy? Uh, are, are other organizations, uh, military or not, taking note of how you're adapting the technology and uh, implementing it themselves?
1: Uh, I think primarily it's the military. I, I Like I said, I work pretty closely in terms of collaborative efforts with um, the guys down at Fort Carson, specifically in the Thor 3 sure. program. And uh, we'll bounce a lot of ideas off, off of each other. And that's some of the stuff that I've modified was based off what they do for their guys. I just... Made it more sports related because some of our people don't really need to shoot laser pistols, um, so I think that they have. We've bounced a lot of stuff off each other. The stuff I've modified, they've either taken or vice versa. Uh, in terms of people outside of that organization, um, I don't honestly know. We we do a lot of tours. People from all over the world will come and visit because of how special our lab is. And so I think there probably are people that have taken some of those modifications to their own place. I just don't know if they're implementing them, if they've modified them themselves or how that's been kind of translated outside of our lab. I would assume that it it has gone somewhere. I just don't know that for sure.
0: I'd love to hear a little bit more um, specifically about the tests that you're conducting at the Air Force Academy. You mentioned a a few of them and how they're adapting to meet uh, different needs for different sporting teams. Um, But could you walk me through the different main tests that you conduct and why the Air Force Academy decided to implement these specific tests?
1: Are you talking in particular to our exercise physiology type test or vision in particular?
0: Um, let's do both. So let's start with exercise physiology and then we'll do uh, vision.
1: Okay. Uh, so we have a couple metabolic carts, which, um, they'll test oxygen and carbon dioxide. So two of our tests are going to involve those metabolic carts. One of them is a VO two max test, which is, it's ultimately how much oxygen can your body consume maximally during exercise? So it's more of a fitness level for lack of a better term test. Uh, and I think they implemented that just so that certain cadets can understand where they're at aerobically. So long distance type stuff, uh, where are they at physically? And uh, it's a good test to give good baseline data. It's also a good test to give them different heart rate zones or different ways to train to increase that VO2 max. Um, not a lot of our teams use it mainly because some of our teams don't necessarily need it. Uh, but like our triathlon club will use it a lot or marathon club, our track team has used it in the past. Tennis and women's soccer has used it a lot. Um, So that's one of our tests. The other one I mentioned about the metabolic cart is called a resting metabolic rate test. So this one is a rest test, which everyone loves because they get to lay down for 15 to 20 minutes. And it gives us ultimately how many calories they burn in a 24 hour period, which is great for nutrition profiling. So we know how many calories they're burning at rest, we can add in their uh, exercise routine throughout the week, and then we can have uh an estimated calorie burn uh, based off of their exercise for that week which is is really good if somebody's trying to lose weight trying to gain weight or maybe they got to a good spot and they just want to maintain it gives them a better idea of how much they should be eating uh, which i think we go back and forth you know some people overeat and some people undereat, and i think more people undereat than they realize so it's a good test to kind of give them some education the other two tests we have uh, we have an anaerobic endurance test so Opposite of that aerobic, it's more of a short term test. Um, We have a force treadmill, which is a human powered treadmill and they keep uh, their pace above seven miles an hour for males, six miles an hour for females. And there's a five pound load on this force treadmill so it can add external load. So every step they take, they're pushing against that five pounds. Most of our cadets are like, oh, seven miles per hour. That's easy. I'll be on there for like an hour. And they are completely wrong. It is a short test. Uh, Longest test I've seen was four minutes. Uh, most people at somewhere between three, 30 seconds and about two and a half minutes. So that one tells us how fit they are anaerobically. So if they were if they were out there running pretty fast, how long could they run pretty fast before their body can't handle it anymore? Uh, so that's a really good test for not only our military, but also uh, a lot of our stop and go sports. Mm. And then the last test we have is called a, a DEXA scan. So that's for body composition. Uh, it's depending on who you talk to, the gold standard for body composition, it gives us percent body fat, fat mass, and lean mass. Uh, it was originally built for bone mineral density, so we can get that data. We can also get how much their bones weigh and that kind of stuff, uh, but we primarily focus on the body composition component. So all of those tests, I'm not quite sure why they were chosen particularly. We've had three or four directors in the last 20 to 30 years, um, but my guess is they give an overall picture of physiologically how our cadets are trained And each one of them can give some adequate data towards that cadet or that cadet athlete to help them improve their performance in one way or the other. Um, These aren't exactly cheap devices. So I think the fact that we've been building this lab over 30 years has really helped us kind of grow and get some really cool devices that we can use that you don't see everywhere. And so it's nice for our cadets to have that access just because it's free and they get a lot of data they can use to help themselves out in terms of increasing that performance.
0: Right. Right. All right, now go ahead and break down the uh, vision test for us as well.
1: So that one's interesting. We don't, we don't actually have vision tests that we do. We pretty much just have exercises. So we've, gotcha. got, we've got 16 different exercises that we have at our disposal in the lab. Um, and I think the biggest reason is that I don't know if anyone that has ever run our vision training lab has any background in, op- in um, being an optometrist, anything in ophthalmology. We're mainly physiologists that have a background in performance that have taken on uh, this vision training aspect. Uh, so I think that's probably why we don't have a lot of um, tests because we wouldn't know how to run them. Even if we had them, mm. um, we do have certain things that we'll do based off of their exercises. So if someone's doing a Brock string, right, that's for best perception. I could use that as a testing device. Like if someone says, I only see one string, then I know they're only using one eye and that's a good Indicator that we may need to do some other type of training, or I may need to send them to the ophthalmologist to get checked out. Um, so we have certain things like that that I can use just based off of my knowledge, but we don't have like we're testing their vision today and we're going to test their um, death perception today, and we don't have things like that. It's more just anecdotally, I'm, I'm watching them as they train. And if I notice that something's off, it may be let's increase the training in that area or you know what? I'm just going to send you to the ophthalmologist to figure out what's going on cuz that's not my uh my forte. That's not my lane.
0: Right. Well, what I think makes uh the testing that you're doing so interesting for the Air Force Academy is that it's obviously useful during uh sporting activities and for general um uh neuro and and bodily well-being. Um But it's also incredibly applicable for military duties. And like you mentioned earlier, uh, Air Force pilots need to have that um, sharp vision and they need to have that um, quick reaction time. And a lot of that is honed through these same tests. So could you break down a little more specifically how these tests and exercises help cadets not only on the field with their sports or just uh, their athletic lifestyles, but also with their military duties and how that ripples out into um, you know being a, a better active duty member.
1: Uh, that's a great point. I think um, we have a lot of uniqueness about the academy, and, and most academies do, that we don't just want to make them academically ready to be an officer, but we have to make them physically ready and mentally ready. So these tests, at least from what I can tell, a lot of it's education. You know, when people don't, not everyone is an exercise physiologist. Not everyone has gone through this degree plan. So they don't know a lot of the ins and outs of training, of nutrition, of taking care of their body, Uh, and especially in our military, it's very common that we pretty much run ourselves to the ground and then we realize we're broken 10 years down the road. So I think a bigger thing that at least I've noticed from preparing these cadets to become officers is education. We're educating them on how to eat properly. We're educating them on how to train properly so they're not overtraining themselves and then they end up again broken in ten to fifteen years. We want to increase that longevity within our military. And that's starting to, to trickle out everywhere. I think military in general is noticing this trend and they're trying to help more officers, more airmen, more soldiers into that self-care, that understanding your body and not pushing too hard. Um, But I think a a lot of this is just that educational piece And, and with the vision as well. You know, if you do want to become a pilot and you're in the vision lab on your freshman year and you realize that your death perception isn't that great, that's probably something that you're going to learn how to train and get better at so that not only can you become a pilot, but that you can stay a pilot. Uh, So I I notice a lot of those little things, and I don't see it in everyone because we may have a cadet that comes in once and I never see him again. Um, But the ones that are consistently there, you can almost see this change over their four years of just learning about their body and learning how to train and how to fuel and everything properly.
0: So it sounds like you and your colleagues uh, are really showcasing the value for um, these tests and these exercises. Are you seeing the Air Force... Army, Navy, uh, Marines. Are you seeing active members uh, take this on once they actually enter um, active duty? Uh, After they've graduated from being a cadet and they've graduated from the academy, do people return for these tests to continue to hone their their, their vision skills and their neurofitness? And if so, is it motivated by just a personal desire to continue to hone those skills? Or is there leadership within those established military organizations in the United States that encourages and pushes for this for active members as well?
1: Uh, I would say it's a mixture of both. We we do actually test and and train several um, officers or airmen or uh, soldiers. So we see a lot of Air Force and Army that come through. I don't see a lot of Navy and Marine, but also we're in the middle of the United States. So There's not a lot of there. there are zero naval bases around us um so i do see a lot of those those guys that come back and women and a lot of it i think is motivation for themselves they're just that type a personality they want to push they want to learn they want to see how they've changed over the years Um, and i think that there is a little bit from their leadership for example the guys i told you we worked out in fort carson a lot of times they'll have a unit leader that will bring their entire unit up to get tested and not only because they know it's beneficial, but it's it's helping their young airmen or their young soldiers get uh, educated on their own physical ability, their own visual ability um, so I do think it's a mixture of both. They're not our primary customer, meaning we see a lot more cadets than we do active duty members um, but we do see a lot of those guys that come up uh, specifically because they know about the resources we have they know they're available to them, and they want to take advantage as much as they can
0: I want to uh just start to wrap up the conversation by looking at the technology itself. We've talked a lot about the applications and the value, uh, but we, have, we haven't quite dug into the tech that makes it possible. Are there any specific technologies that are helping support this work uh, within the Air Force Academy? And are there any extra variables that go into preparing the technology for these tests uh, because there are you know, potentially more in-depth or detailed um, uh, pieces of data that you need to pull for Um, military cadets versus an athlete?
1: So we do have several things. Like I told, I mentioned earlier, we have 16 different exercises that we use. Some of them are very simple, like a Brock string or our cicadic charts, uh, near far charts. Those are obviously just pieces of paper that anyone could make. Um, But we do have several pieces of equipment that are uh, not easily accessible to most people due to cost. So we have a DynaVision or a couple DynaVisions. We have SVT, which is sports bathing vision training systems out of australia we have a couple reflection boards Uh, we have some fit lights some strobe glasses we have a makoto so all of these devices are fairly expensive um, but we work them into our programs as much as we can because of that hand eye coordination that processing information piece of that visual uh, context that we want to train there does go in there we do think about how we can implement these different devices into our program for example I know the neuro trainer that's out there uh, is a pretty decent device as well uh, tracking those tennis balls with numbers on them uh, it's a great training device however I don't have a way to use it it's typically a 15 to 30 minute program per one person and like I mentioned earlier we have to get our cadets in and out A whole team maybe out in 15 to 30 minutes so there are some devices out there that we just don't have the capacity for so that does go into uh, when we're thinking about what devices to purchase, how can it be implemented in our current program. Uh, so there are several devices out there I would I would love to have we just don't have the either the capacity the funding or there's just no way to to implement it in our program when we have to have cadets coming in and out fairly quickly. Uh, but we do like I said we have all those different devices that we currently have that uh, we use quite often. Uh, they're, in and out of our programs every couple weeks um, and they're very useful in terms of breaking up the monotony of the other exercise we have it but also adding to that visual training that neurocognitive training that we can push into that program which makes it really nice.
0: All right, let's look into the future a little bit uh, to wrap up the conversation. Do you see these tests having an expanded role in military organizations moving forward? I know I've kind of already asked this, but if you had to look at how um, these exercises will continue to evolve and how they might continue to get standardized in the different kinds of um, data points that you can pull from them, do you think there's a path to adoption at larger scale? Uh, if so, what does that look like? And if not, what work is left to get more people on board with the utility of uh, vision training and neurofitness activities?
1: I, I do think it's on an upward trend. I think the hardest part currently with vision training is that because there's so much research out there, there's so many different ways you can go. And the I believe the current issue right now is just that we don't have a single body to go to in order to make sure everything is cohesive and everything is following the same plan, uh, which can be good and bad, right? We have different units that do different things that maybe we don't need one cohesive plan. Um, but I think people out there, they don't have the, the right background in adding a vision training program to their unit, but they have the passion. Uh, and so it gets kind of muddy in terms of what are they going to do? How are they going to build it? so i do think there's an upward trend and i do think it will get bigger over the next couple years uh, i think our biggest hurdle is going to be figuring out how to make sure people are doing it properly and doing it in the right manner to make i mean i don't think they're going to hurt them there's you can build a vision training program and you're probably not gonna do any damage um, but to make sure that they're training them in the right and proper way to make sure that they're getting better at whatever their job is so i'm hopeful that in the near future we'll start to have more of us that are running vision programs start to talk to some more leadership and start to spread this out a little bit more. Uh, But I've already heard from several different people in multiple facets of the military, meaning Army, um, particularly Army and Air Force, uh, but also Navy that are starting to find these different ways to add in that vision training component.
0: All right, Diana Bollinger, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Find Your Edge. Again, Diana Bollinger is the Assistant Director and Head Exercise Physiologist of the Human Performance Lab for the U.S. Air Force Academy. Diana, thank you. Stay safe out there. Looking forward to chatting again soon and seeing how this work continues to evolve for the Air Force Academy and other military organizations.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I enjoyed talking about this and, and stay safe yourself. Thank you very much.
0: And thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Find Your Edge with Reflection. If you like what you heard and want to listen to previous episodes, make sure you're heading to reflection.co, R-E-F-L-E-X-I-O-N.co for previous and upcoming episodes of the podcast, as well as other articles and video content and more info about our technology and services. Make sure you're also subscribing on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and leaving a rating and a comment wherever you listen to your podcast content. I'm your host, Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. Till next time.